on today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll start two episodes that look at the sacraments and show that not only are they necessary, but they're based in scripture. Today, we'll look specifically at the concept of sacrifice. We'll look at the mass and we'll look at the priesthood. Does God really require sacrifice? And what about the mass? Did our Lord intend us to take him literally that the Eucharist really is his body, blood, soul, and divinity? We'll use scripture and tradition to show what's true. You can find notes to all these episodes at sspxpodcast.com slash apologetics, as well as all of our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to, as well as all of the resources we're posting. But if you can help with a small one-time or a monthly recurring donation, we'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now let's join Father John McFarland for episode number 35 of the Apologetic series here on the SSPX podcast. Father McFarland, thank you for joining us again on the Apologetic series. How are you? Sweet, I'm a star. How about you? Uh, very well, thank you. Finally, uh, it's sweater weather in Phoenix, which is kind of nice. And it's it, it's actually cassock weather. <laughs> yeah, we've got that two weeks of cassock weather. Um, yeah. A sweater weather, it's like, it's like high of 81 today, I think. Shh, don't ruin the illusion. <laughs> People are supposed to think it's fall. I'm starting to, get, starting to get cold here. Down in the hey, low 80s. For us, for us, 80 is, is cold. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Long well, summer. Father, yeah, it is. It is. Well, we're talking today about uh, the biblical and the historical basis for the idea of sacrifice, for the idea of of the mass. Uh, we've we've been looking at uh, the reasonableness of the church's teaching on a lot of different things about the concept of heaven and hell and purgatory, limbo, all those sorts of things. Now let's get into the exterior ways that people practice the faith. Uh, so we're going to be looking at two episodes. One episode is going to have a talk about sacrifice and the mass and the priesthood. And then the rest will look at some of the other sacraments because that is a big apologetical stumbling block for Protestants versus Catholics, so to speak. Um, but where would you like to start with this idea of sacrifice, Father? Well, I mean, the just to point out that, you know, when we're talking about the sacrifice of the mass, we are talking about the the principal act of Catholic worship. Catholic life centers upon this ceremony that is the that we call the holy sacrifice of the mass and uh when we talk about the priesthood it's directly connected to that so the priest's most important job is to offer the holy sacrifice everything else he does is uh secondary to that and um based on the authority that he has to to offer the sacrifice of our lord jesus christ so uh, and then the holy eucharist the the sacrament sacramental element that we receive is consecrated during the holy sacrifice of the mass so these three things are are very closely connected um and it is a matter of the uh, of the catholic faith that it is not just uh, a memorial meal it's not just some kind of commemorative ceremony but that there is a a real sacrifice that that is offered uh during during the uh during the mass and uh the council of trent has defined that it's a a true and proper sacrifice, uh, and it's um, the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross continued. Uh, and to not all that is to to put oneself outside the the belief of the church and and, and the truth. I, I don't recall. I'm looking back at the spreadsheet that we that we've already done with apologetics, uh, and we've, we're on episode what 35 now. Uh, I'm looking back at our spreadsheet. We Episode five, we talked about religion in general, but could we speak just for a minute about the idea of sacrifice itself? Why why does religion need sacrifice, and and have we always had sacrifice in in our religion? Certainly, and, and sacrifice is something that we find pretty much universally in in the ancient history uh, of of the human race. Uh, we find it, of course, in in uh, in the Bible, the first reference is in the book of Genesis with Cain and Abel offering sacrifice uh, to God. And then we, we find throughout the book of Genesis and that ancient history of mankind, but also is something that, that existed among the Greeks and among the Romans and um, in, in every part of the world where we look, there's this notion of, uh, of sacrifice, of destroying or changing something, some physical thing 
in order to make an offering to to God or to some notion of deity, testifying to that the, the supreme dominion of uh, of God um, by you know it's not that you can give to Him in the same way you would give to another human being, but that this this gift of a thing you're not using it, you're consecrating it to His use. The destruction of it is is um, in testimony of His His glory and His supreme dominion. Um, and it's only really modern religions that have have done away with sacrifice, Protestantism, most notably. Yeah, uh, this may be a little bit of a tangent, but just briefly, if if someone says, "Why do why does God need us to do this?" If He already knows that He loves us, or if He already knows that we love Him, why does He need sacrifice? Is it right. is it just because our exterior actions are reflecting what should be going on interiorly? Is that the main reason? Yes. And it's, so the, the thing we sacrifice is something, something good, something worthwhile, something important, um, making a, a, a certain consecration of that to God. Not that he needs it. Uh, you know, he, in the, uh, in the old Testament, it reprimands the Jews. You know, it's not, you think I need this meat? Do you think that I'm, I, I, I need you to, to, to cook a bull or a sheep to, uh, to satisfy me? Uh, it's it's not that it's it's supposed to be a testimony of of our interior dispositions, his okay. supreme dominion. We're not destroying ourselves because he's forbidden us to do that, but to make the offering of something that is important, usually something connected to the maintenance of of human life, like food of some sort, animals, um, uh, drink offerings, libations, um, uh, bread, salt, flour. You know these kinds of things that that are closely connected to our life making. This this representation of our of our sacrifice of ourself to him. Okay, so can we talk a little bit about the Old Testament sacrifices? Those were those were good. Those were, but they were part of the old covenant, and right. and obviously that that changed. We'll we'll get to that. But um, what is the relationship between the Old Testament sacrifices and the new? So the the Old Testament sacrifices are we say figures or types of things to come in the New Testament, as are most things in the Old Testament. They're, they're representations of things that are to come. And uh, so they're representing the sacrifice of, of the New Testament, the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. So the sacrificial animals among the, the, the Old Testament Israelites are uh, firstborn males. So the, uh, whether that's a, you know, a sheep or, or a calf or what have you. Um, and that's representing, again, our Lord Jesus Christ described in the New Testament as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. And uh, they have to be pure and unblemished. And you can't just sacrifice the, the junky animal you didn't want to keep anyway, the thing that's got some disease or is missing a leg or an eyeball uh, and is more or less useless to you. You have to sacrifice something that's, that is spotless, that is uh, um, perfect in the, in the sense of, of having all of its members of being healthy, uh, et cetera. And, um, and of course, the the our Lord Jesus Christ being, being absolutely pure, free from sin, as uh, St. Peter expresses it, knowing not that you were redeemed, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as gold or silver from your vain conversation, the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb unspotted and undefiled. So St. Peter there makes very clear the, the, that uh, prophetic figurative nature of the the uh the old testament sacrifice of the unspotted and undefiled lamb and and the priest offering the sacrifice has to fulfill the conditions of the legal purity of the old law and that's a representation of the the sinlessness of the of the purity in the in the strictest sense of our lord jesus christ for it was fitting that we should have such a high priest holy innocent undefiled separated from sinners and made higher than the heavens so at the the all of those Old Testament sacrifices are pointing us in the direction of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Again, you have okay. different prophetic elements in those sacrifices, uh, in in the individual you know, different kinds of sacrifices. For example, the Paschal Lamb, uh, whose blood was was poured out and then put on the doorposts to prevent the the destruction of the firstborn of the of the Israelites in Egypt, as um, our, our Lord's blood is protects us from the destruction of, uh, of eternal damnation. The bones of the of the lamb are not broken, like our our the gospels say specifically of, of our Lord and His sac 
sacrifice on the cross that his bones were not broken. You have the sacrifice of the, the scapegoat where he was symbolically loaded with the sins of the people that would impose their hands upon him and then drive him out of the camp or out of the city uh, to be destroyed by wild beasts, a uh, striking figure of our, of our Lord's sacrifice, have loaded as it were with our sins and being sacrificed outside the city of Jerusalem um, you know, by figurative wild beasts by the uh, by the Gentiles and so on. Uh, Throughout the, the different sacrifices, you can point to all sorts of elements like this that foretell the sacrifice of our Lord. All right. So this is this is the the, the history. This is the story of of sacrifice in the Old Testament and the you know, Protestants. Anyone else who is in the in the Christian broad community, broad camp, uh, would would agree with us so far about everything that you've been talking about, right? Right. And I think they understand that those prophetic elements of the Old Testament sacrifices referring to the, the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Um, so, but what I think the big difference based on conversations that you and I have already had in previous podcasts is they're going to say that you don't need that. Basically the sacrifice of the cross was all that was necessary. This was done. It was an infinite work of redemption as the once and for all sacrifice. Nothing else is needed moving, moving forward. Right. Right. And so that's kind of the basic thing. And they'd even say that, you know, to your sacrifice to the mass is somehow implying that there's something deficient in our Lord's sacrifice on the cross. Uh, and that's certainly not what we're saying. You know, and if we think about the, the, you know, the old Testament and even prior to the old Testament in, uh, you know, before the Mosaic law, there, the sacrifice was, was an integral part of life from the beginning of, of the existence of mankind with Cain and Abel. Uh, it's, it's central to the worship of the old Testament. Religious life revolves around the, the tabernacle of the testimony. And then, and then once the temple is built around the temple, which is in the whole point of those places is in the first place, sacrifice. And it would again be strange if, if suddenly, you know, after these thousands of, uh, of years of history of, uh, of men offering sacrifice as part of their daily religious worship. We just didn't do that anymore. Um, if it were, if it's, it was just a mere remembrance of, of a past sacrifice. Right. And of course we're not claiming either that our Lord's sacrifice is in any way insufficient. We say that the, the, the mass is strictly dependent upon the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, the, 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 the Council of Trent is pretty explicit. Forgive the, the length of the quotation, but he therefore, our God and Lord, though he was about to offer himself once on the altar of the cross unto God his Father by means of his death, there to operate in eternal redemption, nevertheless, because that his priesthood was not to be extinguished by his death in the last supper on the night in which he was betrayed, that he might leave to his own beloved spouse the church a visible sacrifice, such as the nature of man requires whereby the bloody sacrifice once to be accomplished on the cross might be represented and the memory thereof remain even unto the end of the world and its salutary virtue be applied to the remission of those sins which we daily commit. Declaring himself constituted a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, he offered up to God the Father his own body and blood under the species of bread and wine. So there's a lot there, um, but it is, it's, it's the same sacrifice, right? Just renewed uh, daily uh, on the altar, right? different in form, but same, the same in substance uh, as that of the cross. And interesting in there, the Council of Trent says, a visible sacrifice that the nature of man requires, and something we find mm. in universal in, in human history, uh, something that, uh, that God then um, makes very specific with the Mosaic Covenant, continues this, this, this thing that we need to do, uh, continues throughout history, in the most perfect way possible in, in strict union with the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So, so the, the, the cross, the, the redemption already took place. The passion and death of our Lord already took place, obviously. Um, so again, this, this sacramental renewal, uh, re recreation, I'm maybe committing heresies with the word choices I'm using. Um, but, but that is helping to apply those merits of right. that passion over time. Right. And that's, you know, it's obviously something that, that, that does take place throughout time, the application of those merits to individual souls, because most of those souls didn't exist at the time of, 
of our Lord's passion. And, and there are different ways in which those merits are applied. Baptism is is one of them, for example. And I think um, you know most Protestants would 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 agree with that that it, that baptism is an, an application of of the the merits of of Jesus Christ to individual souls. Um, and even you know whatever else we do for our salvation is an application of those merits to our soul. And so the mass is 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 simply along those same lines. Those graces are merited once and for all by our Lord Jesus Christ, but by God's decision, he can do this however he wants. Those merits are applied to individual souls throughout history by means uh, of the holy sacrifice of the mass. Okay. And and I guess we'll get into this a little bit more. And we talked about this in the sacrament series that we did uh, some months ago, but but essentially all of the other sacraments have kind of at their root, have their basis, this, the, the sacrifice of, of the, the mass. It, it, they derive a lot of their e- efficacy and their, and their graces from that as well. Right. Well, well, there, everything, uh, every grace that we receive depends strictly on the sacrifice of our Lord. So, right. Uh, on the cross. And if we're saying that this is the, is the sacrifice uh, of the cross, then we can say also they depend upon upon the mass and the the application of those uh, those merits and those fruits to the individual souls. Okay, um, and then wh- why did God decide? Why did Jesus decide to do it this way? Why did he decide to? <laughs> I mean, I, I know right. that's kind of a silly thing to to ask, but so I mean, it's it's a question we can ask, and ultimately the answer to any any question about why God does anything is because he wants to. Uh, and if, uh, you know, if we look for reasons beyond that, it's a, it's a question of fittingness. And so we can see the, the, uh, the appropriateness again, as the council of Trent says that it's, um, you know, in accord with our, with our nature, that sac- a visible sacrifice is required by our nature. Uh, that's, you know, that's why God has chosen to, to do this visible sacrifice. He's, he's, um, they made it sacramental. So, symbolic in a certain way, but, um, symbolizing and by symbolizing really bringing about what it symbolizes. So, and, and using elements, uh, bread, wine that are easily available pretty much everywhere. Okay. So, um, again, in, in the old Testament, we've already talked about all the, all the different sacrifices in the old Testament. Um, in the old Testament though, we're, was it the people that were offering the sacrifice? Was it the priests? Was it both? How did, how did that work? So prior to the Mosaic covenant, it was usually kind of heads of families who filled the, fulfilled this, uh, this priestly function. Uh, kings uh, also might, you know, Abraham being the head of a numerous family offering sacrifice, et cetera. Melchizedek being a, being a king, uh, prophets as well. And then with the, the Mosaic Covenant, it was mostly reserved, although not entirely, to the, um, the priesthood of the tribe of Levi descending from, from Aaron, the brother of Moses. And you did have exceptions to that, but in general, those were the, the sacrifices that were offered. And you know, the people offered their, their, uh, their sacrifices to the priest then to present them to God. And okay. they then in many of the sacrifices, at least communicated by eating a portion of what had been offered the people and almost always the priests, except for in the sacrifice that was known as the Holocaust, the complete burnt offering where everything was simply torched, um, in honor. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we see um, that you see the continuity yeah. with, with the church's teaching in those things too. So we have, you know, we have the, the, the priesthood, right? The, the Catholic priesthood. And it's taken the place of the the priesthood of Aaron, and we have that the people offering their sacrifices through the priests, and we have the the communication. Right? The priest receives communion at every mass, and at most masses at which the faithful assist, they also uh, receive holy communion, a a portion, so to speak, of that of the sacrifice that's been offered. All right, um, the. There's something in your notes that you pass along that we're going to have on on the website as well about the the prophecy of, of Malachi, and, and it's uh-huh. a really striking passage. Can you talk about that a little bit, Father? 
Right. So the, from the the um, the first chapter of the uh, the prophecy of Malachi, Malachi, Malachias, however you want to say his name, chapter yep, chapter one, verse eleven. For from the rising of the sun even to the going down, my name is great among the Gentiles, and in every place there is sacrifice, and there is offered to my name a clean oblation. For my name is great among the Gentiles, saith the Lord of hosts. And so it, it's 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 prophecy. It's, it's prophesying something of the future. Aaron is most things in the Old Testament. The prophecies pertain to the time of the New Testament. And if this doesn't refer to the mass as understood by Catholics, to what could it refer? Not to the Jewish sacrifices, which are only offered in the temple. They're not never offered among the, the Gentiles. And not any pagan sacrifice, right? Or natural law sacrifice. There, why would there be a, a prophecy pertaining to that? Right. A, a clean oblation, right? A sacrifice pleasing to God, glorifying his name. And right. from the, the rising of the sun, even to the going down at all times, right? In every place, there is sacrifice at every plate. It, so all times, all places and among the Gentiles. So spread to all the, the nations, including the, you know, Everyone who is is not among the Israelites or among the Jews, and that perfectly describes uh, the holy sacrifice of the mass, right? Even at at this time, everywhere in in every country, um, at any time of day, there there is a mass being set. Yeah, and then the Psalms is, are are also giving a prefiguration of the sacrifice of the mass as well, right? Or you have this this passage in in Psalm. 109, as Catholics count the Psalms, I think that'd be Psalm 110, um, according to the the Jewish and Protestant uh, enumeration. And verse 4, thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Right. And the Psalm is clearly a messianic prophecy, right, and referring to the incarnation. You know, In the womb before the day star, I begot thee, and uh, and so on. And so it's not a priest, not, a, not speaking of the priesthood of the line of Aaron, and our Lord is not of the tribe of Levi. He's not a descendant of Aaron. He's of the tribe of Judah. And there's this reference to Melchizedek, this mysterious figure from the book of, of Genesis, who met Abraham as he's returning from the battle in which he rescued his, his nephew Lot, uh, from who had been taken prisoner by the, the Elamites. And uh, Melchizedek comes out to, to meet uh, Abraham, and Abraham offers him tithes and uh, he offers sacrifice, Melchizedek does. And the epistle of the Hebrews makes repeated reference to this prophecy and to the, this figure of Melchizedek. It refers to the great, greater antiquity of Melchizedek's priesthood with reference to that of Aaron. Uh, refers to Melchizedek as being something of a mysterious figure, as having no, no, no parents, no genealogy, um, appearing almost eternal. Um, and our Lord Jesus Christ, or as a messianic prophecy, it refers to him. He's of the priestly order of Melchizedek, then that surely means that he offers sacrifice in some way, in a manner similar to the way it was offered by Melchizedek. Otherwise, what sense does the prophecy make? And Melchizedek did not offer himself in a bloody sacrifice upon the cross. What does he offer in sacrifice? All that we know, all that the book of Genesis tells us is that he offered a sacrifice of bread and wine which is a figure of the Last Supper. So our Lord offering bread and wine and being a sacrifice by their transformation into his body and blood. It is, um, so So this, I, I've heard that this passage in, in scripture is a little bit odd because it, it talks about the bread and wine being offered. And I, I believe in the new mass, Again, sorry, a little bit of a tangent here, but in the new mass, it talks about this, uh, about the bread and wine being offered. And that's not exactly accurate, right? Because it's, it's not the bread and wine that is being offered. It's the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ is being offered. Yes. But even in the, um, you, you can, you know, there is an offering made already when they are in, in the offertory of the, of the, of the bread and wine. Um, because in view of what they are going to become. Okay. Uh, so that the, 
you know, the, and even the, um, you know, the language isn't always, uh, as, as super precise as, as you would want for, for, uh, you know, making theological definitions and so on. Sure. Okay. So when, when our Lord at the last supper is, is inaugurating the mass is, you know, again, there's, there's debate between different denominations. Is he inaugurating a meal? Is he inaugurating a remembrance? Is he actually inaugurating a sacrifice? Are there any clues in scripture or from tradition that, that tell us whether or not our Lord intended to create a sacrifice? Absolutely. And of course it's where I argue he did. Um, you know, St. Luke says, this is, this is the chalice, the new Testament in my blood, which shall be shed for you. And so that this idea of, uh, that this is the, uh, the, the Testament in my blood and St. Matthew adds unto the remission of sin. Um, and St. Luke speaks of the, the chalice itself. Of course, the chalice referring to what's contained in the chalice, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, and it, it would be a stretch to suppose that that refers only to the shedding of blood on the cross, which has no reference of itself to a chalice. Okay, so there's there, no one has a chalice catching the blood of our Lord at the foot of the cross and then offering it. Right. Certainly our Lord doesn't have it himself. So this, he's speaking about shedding this blood, you know, which is this chalice uh, for the, the remission of sin. Okay. Um, and our Lord is, he's, he's referencing here the, the, the establishment of the old covenant. Okay. He says, this is the blood of the new Testament. And if you look at the book of Exodus, when Moses establishes the, the old covenant, and then he took blood and sprinkled it upon the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord hath made with you. And St. Paul references this again in the, in the epistle to the Hebrews, there's a change at the last supper from the old covenant to the new covenant. And in the time we're passing from the time of, of the old Testament, mere figures and symbols to, to the realities, which may still be symbolic, but there also, there is the underlying supernatural reality. Um, and so there's a real sacrifice that takes place at the time of the, the, the establishment of the old covenant, the actual sprinkling of blood Moses, uh, has, and, um, could the, the, you know, the establishment of the new covenant then take place at a moment of, of just a pure figure of, of pure image. In fact, a, a sacrifice that's less real than the sacrifice that established the, the old covenant. Yeah. Uh, so when he's saying these, these words, when he says the words that, that we call now the, the words of institution, when he says, this is my body, this is my blood. Again, he's, he's making it very clear. It is this, it's not, he's not saying it is a symbol of, right. Again, we, we have that, uh, we have that pushback from, from other denominations saying, well, he said, do this in remembrance of me. So that's just a remembrance. It's not really the sacrifice, but he's saying clearly at the last supper that this is my body. This is my blood. Right. It's, I mean, it's absolutely explicit to, to say, that is in this case means symbolizes is to do violence to the text. Mm -hmm. uh, there's not any real reason for, for making that assumption unless you're imposing your, your, uh, your prejudices upon what's, what's written there. Yeah. And again, which is, which is given for you, which is poured out for you. He's speaking in the present tense. Right, and then you have, again, that the repetition of those, the, well, the reference to the words of Moses establishing a new covenant. What is the, so how do the Protestants view the, the Eucharist? Do they see it as just a, a nice symbol as something that's just devotional? Or are there some well, denominations that see it as actually the body and blood of our Lord and Savior? I mean, of course you have a lot of variation when, when, uh, everything's open to your personal interpretation. Um, you know, if we're all guided by the Holy ghost who, who's right and who's wrong. Um, so you have different things, but, but basically it, it does come down. I mean, overall, a denial of the real presence one way or another. So you have some who okay. say that it just becomes present at the moment of communion and the bread is still there. And that's kind of an ancient Lutheran thing that I'm sure someone somewhere still holds. But for the most part, it's, it's, it's merely symbolic. And so you have the, the, 
the the great right of uh, of Christianity reduced to to nothing, to you know a little bit of bread and, and a sip of wine in in a remembrance, you know, uh, the uh, mere remembrance of of the sacrifice of our Lord, and really in that case, the the Old Testament sacrifices were more real; they were they were better representations of the sacrifice of the cross than the the than holy communion and and a communion service is in uh in the new testament if the the that standard product protestant conception is, is accurate and this concept of sacrifice which is so central to man's notion of religion from the very beginning has no place in daily life anymore yeah you know and if you think of what the the catholic church's achievements in in art and and architecture and and uh, and music and so on, it all revolves around this this central thing. And you even have the great Protestant composers did, did settings of masses. Um, you know, you didn't really do a, a setting of a Protestant communion service. Uh, right. at, there's, you know, you've you've made the focal point of your your Sunday worship, not worship, not actually worship, but songs and sermons, right, which have their place. But that's not sure. the central act of man's adoration to, to, to God. How do we join ourselves on a regular basis to the, the, the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ? How do we, we connect ourselves to this, this great moment? Is it just mere remembrance? Is that all that he's left us? Do these words, this is my body and this is my blood, mean just that? And it seems to me, I mean, I might be a little biased. A little um, bit. <laughs> But uh, it seems to me that it, it's it, it you've you've just sucked the life out of of uh, of holy communion of 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 man's religion. Yeah, and they're, they're, they're this is like this is it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it seems like it's neutered. It's just not. Yeah, well, um, and it is and understandably it's something that that on the face of it you say well you know that's that's. That's hard to believe, but and and we'll get to that when we talk about John chapter six in a little bit. Um, it is, it's, but we can take the words of our Lord at face value, or we can we can wrench them into something else and and be left with with uh, with a shell of of what He intended for us. Yeah, um, we're going to pivot a bit. This is very similar to what we've already been talking about. We've been talking about the idea of sacrifice and that this is an actual sacrifice. Um, but now we're going to pivot to the real presence. Is our Lord truly present in the Eucharist? Um, and there's a little bit of overlap here. Well, a lot of overlap. But there's a lot of overlap, what, yep. What are the distinctions here, Father? So, I mean, as far as, you know, the, the real presence is is necessary for the the notion of uh, of the sacrifice. Again, if it's just a remembrance, if there's if it's just bread and just wine, when when it's all said and done, there's there's no sacrifice taking place. There's it's a pure remembrance. Okay, so there's no real sacrifice without a sacrificial victim, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ, truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity under the species of bread and wine. Um, and again, so. This is my body. This is my blood. Nothing in that implies merely symbolic presence. All right. Um, are there prefigurations of, we've talked about prefigurations in the Old Testament. Are there prefigurations in the New Testament as well about the Eucharist? Well, the, the multiplication of the, of the loaves by our, by our Lord, um, which St. John particularly links directly to the, the teaching uh, on the Holy Eucharist. Okay. Um, and of course, the, the real presence, the, the Blessed Sacrament, is spread throughout the world under the, the appearance of bread, uh, multiplying, as it were, the, the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ um, across the globe. And the, the miracle manifests the divine power of Jesus in a striking way so as to prepare the people to receive the teaching about the real presence in the Blessed Sacrament and, and Holy Communion. Right? As we said, it's a, it's, a, 
it's a difficult teaching of the faith. It, it requires faith. It's been a stumbling block for many throughout history. It's a stumbling block for the, the Jews to whom our Lord is preaching uh, in, in the sixth chapter of St. John's Gospel. But, you know, in this we have to remember, of course, that, that Jesus is God and God can do whatever he wants. And if he can wants to change the subject substance of, of, of bread into his the substance of his body and blood with uh, retaining the, the appearances of bread and of wine, he can certainly do that. And and the words are they're really clear in in John chapter six. I am the bread of life. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. Uh, and you can imagine that the reaction of of his his audience is understandable. You know, if you're listening to someone, a religious leader who's telling you, all of you, in order to to have life, to live forever, you have to eat my flesh. Yeah. I am the bread of life. And so they ask, how can this man give us his, his flesh to eat? And our Lord doesn't soften. He doesn't explain away. He doesn't attenuate the first statement. He says, no, no, you're not understanding. That's not actually my flesh. And he never says right, that. Right. He never says anything that even resembles that. In fact, he further emphasizes, amen, amen, I say to you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall not have life in you. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You know, even that amen, amen, it's, it's emphatic. Mm-hmm. This is true. Listen up. Uh, yeah. Right. And, and after he said this, this was, I think, in Capernaum just before, just before the, the end of his public life. I think I, I might be getting that a little bit wrong, but he, he loses followers at this point. And even the apostles, um, I think, again, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't they say something to him like, Lord, this is, this is a hard thing for us to hear or a hard thing for well, us to understand? Yeah, that's some of those who are described as his disciples, not, not the 12. Um, oh, okay. So this is, a, this is a hard saying and who can hear it? Uh, yes. Uh, you know, what, what is that? What are you talking about? Right. Yeah. Um, and so, so many, many leave him at that point. And, um, yeah, you know, he asked the apostles, do, will you leave me too? And they say, where would we go? You're the one with the, with the words of everlasting life. They have, they have the faith in, in what he's teaching. Um, but it wouldn't make sense for our Lord to lose followers over what's a, a misunderstanding. If it's, if it's just like, like, look, no, you're just going to be eating some bread. You know, it's just, don't worry about it. I, it, the, yeah, the reality is, is, is striking and it's important. And if, uh, if you believe the Bible is the word of God, then you have to have a plausible explanation for what our Lord means here, right? These words are strong. He's mm-hmm. promising eternal life to those who eat his flesh and drink his blood. He says that those who fail to do so will not have life in them. And it stretches credulity past the breaking point to imagine this is all referring to just eating a piece of bread as a symbolic memorial of the passion and death of our Lord on the cross. And that, that's, that's clearly not what he's talking about here. It's, it's much stronger than that. It's much more significant than that. Yeah. Um, did, the, did the apostles, again, was this just a misunderstanding in the scripture, playing devil's advocate for a second? Is, just, is this just a mistranslation of our Lord's words? And then obviously the apostles later on are going to say, well, no, it's just symbolism. Or did they agree with what our Lord was saying and, and carry on that same uh, understanding of it? Right. And of course, certainly the, the latter. And so St. Paul writing to the Corinthians says, therefore, whosoever shall eat this bread or drink the chalice, the blood of the, pardon me, of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So if you receive Holy Communion unworthily while in sin, you're guilty in some way of, of attacking our Lord. You're guilty of his, his body and blood. Again, that's meaningless if it's just an, a symbolic piece of bread. Right. How can you be guilty of, of sin if it's just eating bread? It doesn't make sense. Right. Right. And so, I mean, if it's, if you were, if it was just a symbol and you visibly disrespected the symbol, that would be something. Sure. But to, 
but to simply receive unworthily, right? And nobody, nobody else, it's probably nobody else there has has the knowledge of your your lack of worthiness, right? But to do so makes you guilty, right? guilty of of having, in effect, crucified our Lord. And, you know, St. Paul goes on to say, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh judgment to himself, not discerning the body of the Lord. That's an interesting statement. It's, I mean, it's, it's very clear. Or not discerning the body of the Lord. Yeah. It, if this, this question of worthiness is, is directly linked to the fact that it is really the body of our Lord. And if you're not recognizing that, then you, then perhaps you're, you're, you're going to do this unworthily. Right? You're mm. not not being sufficiently cognizant of the fact that this is, in fact, the body of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's it. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually never understood what that mean that meant. Not discerning the body of the Lord. So the, he's saying, if if you don't believe that it is the body of the Lord, that's that's what that phrase means. Not discerning. Right. Effectively, or you're not you're not realizing it. You're not paying attention to it. You're not treating it with the seriousness that it deserves. Okay. Which again, if it's a symbol, if it's just a symbol, doesn't make any sense, right? Could right. could his statement possibly mean not discerning that the body of our Lord is symbolized? Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. I mean again, that's that's a stretch, right? And again, why would it matter? Why would it? Why is such a big deal? Right? Eating and drinking judgment to himself if it's if it's a mere symbol. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, what about after the time of the apostles? These are some writings from, uh, or from the from the evangelists, some from from the very early days of the church. What about a little bit later, kind of the second second part, the early fathers of the church? Do they continue on with the same idea? Absolutely, clearly. Uh, it's, I would invite anyone who's who's interested in the subject further reading to to read the fathers of the church on this on the subject of uh, of the Holy Eucharist. Uh, it, it couldn't be clearer. What, what the early church believes. Um, to give just a couple of examples, I'd say Ignatius of, of Antioch, who, who dies sometime, there's a little bit of dispute over the date of his death. Uh, the church historian Eusebius has him at, at, as early as 108 uh, AD uh, and the latest in, in the 40s. Um, but he's, he's referring to a, uh, an heretical sect in his, in his writings, and he says that they abstain from the Holy Eucharist in prayer because they do not believe that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. So this group of heretics don't, they abstain from the Holy Eucharist because they don't believe. And of course the implication there is the Catholic belief is that it is the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ. And St. Irenaeus, who's, who's not much later, who lives from 130 to 202, says that Christ declares that the chalice, which is but earthly, is his own precious blood. Since then, the chalice and bread by the word of God become the Eucharist of the body and blood of Christ. How dare they, speaking of heretics again, deny that the flesh which partakes of the flesh and blood of Christ is a member of him who received the gift of God that is life everlasting. Right, so again, being very clear, this is our Lord's own words that uh, they are, this is his precious blood and you know, by the power of God, they the bread and wine become the body and blood of our Lord. And these are just a couple of the very earliest representative of a whole body of uh, patristic writings on the subject. Um, of course, you can find a few quotes here and there taken out of context that seem to imply something else, but the if you've taken all together, the, the church fathers are unanimous on the subject of the real presence. Of course, we can't yeah. expect the theological precision that comes in, in later centuries. You know, we have, there's, there's some difference in terms at times but the sense is this, that you really are eating and drinking the body and blood of Jesus Christ himself. Yeah. Well, it's um, clear. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know what else to say. I mean, it's it's yeah. looking at all of the, looking at the words of our Lord himself, looking at the words of the evangelists and the apostles, and then the early fathers. Scripture, tradition, the two of them together seems kind of like a slam dunk. Am I missing anything? I, uh, yeah, especially, you know, the, the chapter six of, uh, of St. John, you know, it's, it's, it's so clear that our Lord is, is speaking about his, his flesh and blood. 
And, mm-hmm. um, obviously it is, we have to understand that it's, it's sacramentally present. You know, we're not eating a, a piece of meat and drinking a, a chalice that's, um, visibly sensibly, uh, full of blood. Uh, but again, that's, that's affected by divine power and he demands this, this act of faith in it. And those who refuse to believe his word, even after having seen his miracles and had abundant proof of his, his credentials as a divine messenger, right. if they refuse to believe, then they're, then, um, they're turning away from, from everlasting life. Mm-hmm. And we get to say that God can't do this, uh, as some, you know, you certainly find among the, among rationalists and, uh, unbelievers of whatever sort that this is an impossibility, but it's not something that anyone who calls himself a Christian should say is impossible to God. Right. As the angel Gabriel says to, to our lady right then there, no word shall be impossible with God. He can, he's God. He, he wants. All right. So that's the real presence. That's the mass. Um, can we talk just briefly about the priesthood? Obviously priesthood and the mass are, are so intimately linked. Um, where would you like to, to kind of finish us off with this broad topic, Father? Well, I, would say, I would say, you know, if we, we've already covered the, the fundamentals when we spoke about the masses as sacrifice, because if you say sacrifice, then whoever offers the sacrifice is a priest. Um, and if you say priest, you're speaking about one who, who offers sacrifice. And, and, you know, the, the epistle to the Hebrews again, covers the, the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ at length. Okay. And we've considered the relationship of the, the mass to the, uh, the sacrifice of our Lord on the cross. Right. And then his sacrifice is continued in, in the mass, his priesthood is continued in those who, who offer the mass on his behalf, right. In, in, even in his person, as we say, uh, in, in Catholic theology. Um, and this is already something that we, we see in the, in the new Testament, the, so when he tells the apostles to to do this for a commemoration of him, he is commanding them to to offer the, the sacrifice, and it's commonly believed that at that moment he he is ordaining them priests and bishops. And then we find in the in the Acts of the Apostles and reference to it in the epistles, this ceremony of the the laying on of hands right, to confer the the priestly and episcopal office, which is still how it's conferred today. Uh and um, but it's certainly again taking place in the time of the apostles. You do come across both words, bishop and priest. Bishops are 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 priests as well, uh, mm-hmm. in reference to the to the leaders of the um, the Christian communities, mm-hmm. and uh, as well as deacons who form part of the hierarchy. And we find these things present everywhere throughout the history of the church. So from the very beginning, there is this hierarchical order and it's these, right? These, these men who are also in charge, the ones who are, are supposed to teach the ones who are supposed to perform other rites, who are the, those, and they're the only ones right, who, who offer the Holy sacrifice of the mess. So something again, traceable back to, to, to the very beginning. It's not something that, uh, just anybody did to, right. to offer the sacrifice. Anybody could participate, anybody could be present, but it's, but there are those who are specifically charged with performing this right. And they're called bishops and priests from the very beginning. Uh, and then just to give you one quotation from, from the fathers, uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa, right? The same power of the word renders sublime and honorable the office of the priest who by the newness of ordination has been singled out from the multitude. He who was yesterday, one of the people suddenly becomes a commander presiding officer, a teacher of righteousness and the dispenser of hidden mysteries. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Especially, especially that, that reference to the dispenser of, of, of hidden mysteries. Yeah. Yeah. And that, the, and that leadership, um, and, and the offering of sacrifice are, are joined together is, is likewise something that goes back to, you know, the, the very beginning. Right, the notions of of sacrifice. Abraham as the head of his his numerous household, um, his immediate family, as well as his his servants, whoever else is there. He's the, he's one who offers sacrifice. We have um, his sacrifice offered by the prophets. We have the the Old Testament priesthood. These are our leadership roles for the people, even if it's distinct from 
the temporal rulers, right? They are, they are leaders in, in those things pertaining to religion and they are offers of sacrifice. And that's a tradition that, that continues in, in, uh, the, in the new Testament. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's, it's something I think that is, and again, not to make this, we've already done the crisis series. We've already done the sacraments series, but again, it is striking when you look at the new uh, interpretation or the new idea about the priesthood, that the priest is, is a, is someone who helps everyone else get to heaven. That is seen as the primary duty of the priest. Whereas in, in, in reality, in the traditional understanding of things, the priest is the sacrificer. The priest is the mass. The mass is the priest. Everything else is, 100% 100% secondary. Yes, you are supposed to help me. You are a help, supposed to help me get to heaven, but the sacrifice comes first. Everything else is, it doesn't matter. Right. And that's, well, and it the, matters, the, the, but yeah. And it, well, it's, it's a consequence of, of the primary, uh, primary duty. So we, God is in the first place. So what's the first thing that's, that's done? We, we render the worship that is due to God. Oh, by the way, that's the best thing that we can do for our soul and the means right. by which he, he then communicates grace to us by we're fulfilling, you know, our duties and, and offering to him. And then he, he in return dispenses to us. So the, the, the offerings as it were go up, you know, from the people to the, the priest to God and the blessings come down from God to the priest to the people. Right. Yeah. You can think of that in, at, at the mass, right? The first thing that's done is the the sacrifice is confected by the double consecration, and and then holy communion is distributed. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, so God gives gives to us um, after we've made that this offering that is our our duty to Him, and and that's and that's the of course the respective of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He's He's come to this this earth to save us, absolutely, but in the first place to render. Uh, glory and homage to his father and he does that by redeeming us so the the things are all are certainly linked together but it's a question of do we put god in the first place or do we put human beings in the first place and god has to be in the first place which should be at least yeah should make sense absolutely yep well father thanks again so much for your time uh next episode we're gonna be looking at the rest of the sacraments and we're gonna go mm-hmm. be going through those pretty quickly um the other the other five but uh That'll be a that'll be a fun episode as well. Looking forward to it. So my intro. Great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us and God bless you.